Well, our sermon today begins in verse 1 of John chapter 20. But let's set the context first. A lot's happened in the last 48 hours. John 20, which describes Jesus' resurrection from death, takes place on Sunday. Jesus was executed two days previous on Friday, though Jews count their days inclusively. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, which means by Jewish reckoning, Jesus was dead three days. Our Lord was executed as a political revolutionary. At least that's what it said in the official documentation. But the rage of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, has been roused by the theological threat that they perceived in Jesus. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God, but the religious leaders did not believe him. They did not believe his claim. So their problem then became how to formulate Jesus' claim in a manner calculated to impress the Roman governor with how dangerous Jesus was and bring down the death penalty. Their solution was wickedly ingenious. They made the charges against Jesus political, not religious. The Jewish expectation was that, was that the Davidic Messiah was the promised king of Israel, and any king, by definition, posed a threat to Caesar. He opposes Caesar. John 19:14. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, Take him away! Take him away! Crucify him! Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. And to quell the full-scale riot he's about to have on his hands, Pilate gives in and he hands Jesus over to be crucified. And from a merely human perspective, that's how, that's why, Jesus died. But in the eyes of God, something else entirely was occurring that day. By dying on that Roman cross, Jesus fulfilled the task given to him by his heavenly Father, thus glorifying his Father. God's work of redemption was brought to completion, and thus God's wrath against human sin was satisfied. Now, the day after Jesus' crucifixion was a Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, a day of rest, and all day Saturday, Jesus' body lay in the grave. And now we come to our sermon text, chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, so Sunday, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Mary then came running to Simon Peter and to the Apostle John. He is the eyewitness who is writing this account for us and informed them both that someone had removed Jesus' dead body from the tomb and she had no idea where the body now could be. Hearing this terrible news of grave robbery, Peter and John run to the tomb. Verse 4, both were running, but the other disciple, that's John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw... And believed. 
The Apostle John, he sees the burial clothes and he believes. He believes that Jesus' body was not stolen. He believes Jesus rose from the dead. He believes Jesus is alive, just as he promised. Can you imagine what the realization of that fact must have been like for the Apostle John in this moment, to be standing there and, and appreciating that, understanding that. Most, most of the early witnesses come to faith because they see the resurrected Jesus. But John believes before he sees him. And it's the grave clothes that convince him. Perhaps part of it was the contrast with, with the resurrection of Lazarus. You'll recall that Lazarus emerged from his tomb still wearing his grave clothes. But Jesus' body apparently passed through his grave clothes in much the same way as he later materialized in a locked room. But, and this is essential, as we read in verse 9, neither Peter nor John understood at this point from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from death. That's what's lacking here. The salvation historical fulfillment of this event. It's biblical significance, both now and in eternity. That still eludes John. Brothers and sisters, 2,000 years ago, in the early morning darkness in a cemetery garden outside the walls of Jerusalem, not only was this world forever changed, but also the world to come. Jesus of Nazareth, a man accredited by God to be the Jewish Messiah and Savior of the world, rose from the grave in accordance with Scripture. And now we, the church, we proclaim to all people the world's only Savior from sin and the world's final judge of sin. We proclaim that he lives. He lives. And from Jesus' empty tomb comes a divine promise and a message of hope. The promise that God the Father has deemed God the Son's sacrifice for the sins of his people acceptable and pleasing in his sight. His righteous anger against the sins of his people has been spent. His righteous judgment has been exhausted in the body of his dear Son. Sinners may have peace with God. We've been reconciled to him. Jesus' resurrection proves that. But again, this is so important, the salvation historical fulfillment of this event, its biblical significance, both now and in eternity, that still eludes the disciples. They don't get it yet. So, Peter and John go back to where they've been staying. We read in verse 11 that Mary Magdalene, who evidently followed the two of them back to the garden cemetery, remains behind. She's crying outside Jesus' tomb. Verse 11. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. As so often in the resurrection narratives, Jesus is not immediately recognized. We read that the disciples on the Emmaus Road were kept from recognizing him, Luke 24, 16. Uh, the disciples in the boat 
on the lake of Tiberias did not recognize the man on the shore, John 21.4. Taken as a whole, it looks like the resurrection accounts sort of provide a, there's, there's a tension in these resurrection accounts. On the one hand, Jesus' body can be touched, it can be handled and bear the marks of the wounds inflicted on his pre-death body. Uh, Jesus not only cooks fish, but he eats fish. His body consumes food. On the other hand, his body apparently rises through grave clothing, appears in locked rooms, and is sometimes not recognized. Don't ask me about this during the Q&A, all right? I think think the closest explanation we get, though, is from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes, verse 35, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? And then Paul answers that question in the ensuing verses. Verse 15, the resurrected Jesus. He asked Mary Magdalene, woman, why are you crying? It's the same question the angels ask. There's a a mild rebuke here. There's there's nothing to cry for. (laughs) Um, Think, Mary. Are you looking for the corpse of the Son of Man? Impossible. Impossible. Why are you crying? Thinking he was the gardener, because Mary was in a garden, and she probably expected to see a caretaker. She's not expecting to see her risen Savior at that moment. Plus, it's still a bit dark. Uh, Plus, Jesus probably looked different. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. And Mary's anguish and her dismay are instantly swallowed up in delight. When Mary hears her own name in her own language, because Jesus addresses her in Aramaic, Miriam, the name by which her parents and her friends addressed her. And she quickly turns towards Jesus and cries, Rabboni, teacher. And so instead of the dead body she had hoped to recover, Mary finds herself face-to-face with the living Lord Jesus. Mary Magdalene is the first eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Jesus said, Do not hold on to me. Stop clinging to me. And if we read the parallel account in Matthew, Mary probably fell on her face and was grasping Jesus by his feet. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. So in her enthusiastic and her very relieved grasping of Jesus, Mary doesn't comprehend what's happening right now. Uh, Jesus' ascension to the glory that he had with the Father from eternity past, that's still 40 days hence. So she doesn't have to cling to Jesus' feet like he's about to disappear permanently in the next five seconds. However, in 40 days, Jesus will be gone. There's a tension here. So I think what Jesus is saying could be paraphrased like this. Mary, stop holding me. Stop clinging to me. There's no need for this. I'm not yet in my ascended state. This is the time for joy. A time for sharing the good news of my resurrection, Mary, not for clutching me as if I were your jealously guarded private dream come true. 
17b, go instead, stop clutching me, and instead go to my brothers, my, his disciples, and tell them, I am ascending. I'm in the process of ascending to my father and your father. Okay, what does that mean? I'm in the process of ascending. Well, it's a commonplace of the New Testament writers that in the wake of Jesus' resurrection, Jesus was exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high. That's where our Lord is today. He's at the right hand of the majesty on high. But as long as Jesus' resurrection appearances continued throughout these 40 days, his disciples might think he could just sort of like pop up at any old time. Therefore, Jesus' final departure was quite dramatic. A kind of acted farewell. So everyone knew, okay, there's a finality to this, to this departure. So in that sense, Jesus is in the process of ascending to the Father until the final culminating state of ascension. And the farewell discourse, we saw this. Jesus made it very clear that he must depart to prepare a place for them, uh, to send the promised paraclete, and ultimately to return and take them with him. So basically, Jesus is telling Mary Magdalene that his resurrection is so closely tied to his ascension that if she accepts one, if she accepts his resurrection, then she must be prepared to accept the implications of the other. Go instead to my brothers, my disciples, and tell them I am ascending to my father and your father. And of course, God is the father of Jesus and believers both, but in different senses, right? Uh, Lightfoot says this, the disciples must never forget, whereas Jesus' sonship to the father is by nature and by right, theirs is only by adoption and by grace in and through him. Therefore, he speaks of my father and your father, not our father. He's making a distinction. My God and your God. And by Jesus saying my God, it confirms Jesus' humanity, even to the point of worshiping my God and your God as any human being might do, even though Jesus has been introduced from the very beginning of this gospel as God himself. We're seeing that, that mystery here, that great mystery of the incarnation. Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. The dual nature of Christ. Verse 18. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. In other words, his, his dead body has not been stolen. I've seen him alive. Verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, which is the evening of that same day, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, because the Jewish leaders had executed their leader, and they're thinking, well, we're next. In that moment, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Now, the doors may have been locked, but as Jesus' resurrection body passed through his grave clothes, so his resurrection body now passes through locked doors and simply materializes in their midst. And notice what the resurrected Jesus says to his disciples and then what he immediately does. He does this twice. Jesus says, peace be with you. Shalom. 
And then he shows his disciples his wounds immediately. Now, on one level, there's nothing remarkable about Jesus saying shalom. That's a conventional Jewish greeting. It means peace. But notice the repetition of the greeting in verse 21 and then also in verse 26. And in the same, he does the same thing twice. He says peace, shalom, and he shows the wounds. Verse 27, same thing. He immediately shows his wounds to Thomas. I think that's significant. Beloved, we have peace with God. We're no longer God's enemies. We've been reconciled to God because of the cross of Jesus Christ. God's just, righteous anger, his wrath against our sin, has been propitiated in Jesus' death. So that makes Jesus' shalom, peace, spoken on this first Easter evening, the complement of it is finished, it is accomplished, which he said on the cross before he died. It's really two sides of the same coin. The peace of reconciliation and life from God is now accomplished. And so our resurrected Lord immediately shows his disciples the deadly wounds that bought that peace. He does it twice. Verse 20, after he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now, I've used this illustration a few times. It's a John Bell original, but it's so appropriate. I'm not averse to using it again. Have you ever noticed, I hope I'm not dashing anyone's hopes and dreams here, but have you ever noticed that all the photos, all the film footage taken of Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster and UFOs, the second gunman on the grassy knoll who supposedly shot JFK, they're always blurry, right? They're always taken at night in the fog and at a great, great distance. You've never seen a clear, high-definition picture of any of those things, have you? And for good reason. Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster do not exist. So all those pictures have to be out of focus and at night and in the fog. Because if there was ever a clear photo in the daylight up close, the jig is up. It's not going to bear the close scrutiny of skeptics. It's like a magician and his tricks. You ever notice that during a magic show, the magician performs each trick one time, just once, and that's because all his tricks require false bottoms, hidden mirrors, phony screws, and sleight of hand. It's, none of the tricks are actually magic, right? But in his resurrection appearances, Jesus shines a spotlight on himself. As we see here and in the other gospel accounts, Jesus graciously permits his disciples to subject him to a full physical examination. Not one of Jesus' resurrection appearances is seen from a distance in the evening fog as he's dashing over the hills of Palestine. All the appearances are up close. They're tactile. Jesus speaks. He even eats. What he's doing is he's leaving no doubt in the minds of his disciples he has resurrected from death. A disembodied spirit doesn't have flesh and bone. Jesus is no phantom. This isn't some other guy who was crucified. Jesus' wounds are unique. The risen Lord is none other than the crucified 
sacrifice. Which means death has been defeated. And the long-promised king, once crucified, is now alive. However, it's not Jesus' intention to show his disciples uh, that he's alive, and that's enough. That's the end of it right there. I'm alive. No. Rather, because Jesus is alive, their lives are now to be lived in light of this truth. This changes everything, right? Because Jesus is alive, their lives are going to change forever. Our lives are going to change forever. Verse 21. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And there, brothers and sisters, is Jesus' resurrection commission to all Christians. Not one Christian here is exempt. His most famous resurrection commission, of course, is found in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, we call it. Let me just read that text to you. Matthew 28, 18. Then Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey Everything I have commanded you. But in John's gospel, we see that Jesus' resurrection commission builds on Jesus' prayer to the Father in chapter 17, 18. He said, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. That's 17, 18. He builds on that here. Verse 21. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Which doesn't mean now, Christians, that we're, we're replacing Jesus in our ministry to the world. We're not taking over Jesus' ministry. No, it means Jesus' ministry, his mission continues, and it's effective in our evangelistic ministry. The apostles, and then all Christians in every age, we carry on Jesus' work. Do you see what's happening in verse 21? It's not enough as Christians to merely say, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And then there it stops. We just leave it at that. A, a, a bare creed, a bare confession. No, there's a further step. There are implications to Jesus' resurrection if we're to be responding faithfully. As the Father sent Jesus into the world, so the resurrected Jesus sends us into the world. We're to be moving in our hearts, in our minds, our understanding, in our corporate worship from historical events anticipated in the Old Testament, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and worshiping and praising God in that light to a Holy Spirit-empowered commission by the resurrected Jesus to proclaim the good news of his sin-forgiving death and resurrection all over the world. And just as the crucifixion and resurrection are part of the fulfillment of God's plan, so is the commission of all Christians on universal mission empowered by the Spirit. And that spiritual empowerment takes us to the next verse, verse 22. 
And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, what is it about this verse that makes it difficult? It's, it's its relation to Acts 2, right? Pentecost. If the Holy Spirit is given at Pentecost, 50 days from this point, then what in the world is going on here? New City, I am 100% convinced that the Holy Spirit is not being imparted here. Uh, what we're seeing in this portion of Scripture is an acted-out parable. An acted-out parable pointing forward to the full enduing of the Holy Spirit, still to come in Acts chapter 2. Uh, an endowment the church at the time of the writing of this gospel had already experienced. Now, if that sounds confusing, just think about John chapter 13, that last night that Jesus had with his disciples in the upper room, the Last Supper. Remember how Jesus said, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Right? And we could understand what Jesus is saying there on a very sort of simplistic and literalistic level. Jesus could have been saying very solemnly, Unless I wash your dusty feet with this basin of water in my towel, uh, you won't belong to me. Is, is that what he's saying? No. Jesus' foot washing, we know, points forward. It looks ahead to the spiritual washing that's achieved in the cross by his death. Jesus is actually saying, unless I wash away your sin through my death on the cross, you won't belong to me. And to illustrate that, Jesus acts out this parable of washing his disciples' feet. He's doing the same thing here in verse 22. This is an acted-out parable pointing forward to the full enduing of the Spirit still to come in Acts chapter 2. And if we bear a couple of important things in mind, we can be more certain that that actually is the case. I'm not just making it up. Uh, first, grammatically, the text doesn't say he breathed on them. On them does not appear in the Greek text. The verse should be translated, and with that, he breathed. That's all it says, and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So unless we want to adopt an unbiblically literalistic and mechanical view of this action, unless we understand the person of God, the Holy Spirit, to be nothing less than Jesus' expelled breath, we're going to want to say that Jesus' breathing here is symbolic. It's appropriate. Wind breath, air, spirit, it can all be denoted by the same Greek word. And something else to consider, if this were the actual bestowal of the Holy Spirit, the results, the spiritual effect this has on the disciples is pretty disappointing. It doesn't seem to make one bit of difference in the lives of these men. They're still meeting behind closed doors in verse 26. And the natural inference of that is that they're still afraid of the Jewish authorities. But compare that to what happens after Pentecost in the book of Acts. We see power, don't we? And joy, exuberant witness, courageous preaching, and even delight in suffering for the name of Jesus. They're completely transformed, completely different men. So put all those things together, and in effect, what we have here is the resurrected Jesus coming to his disciples and saying, Peace from God to you, achieved through my wounds, my death, 
my shed blood. And now I send you into the world, just as my father sent me. I send you out into this moral order and rebellion against God. As the Father sent me, so I send you to carry on my mission in the power of the Spirit. And my mission continues and is effective in your faithful ministry. That's what he's saying. Brothers and sisters, there is more to Easter Sunday than merely the church's orthodox confession that Jesus is risen indeed. As glorious as that is. He is risen. He is risen indeed. No, there is also bold Spirit-empowered witness. And as we move into verse 23, we see that Jesus now links the reception of the Spirit with the forgiveness or retention of sins. Verse 23, If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, this verse is sometimes understood as giving the apostles and through them individual Christian ministers or priests the power to forgive or not forgive the sins of individual people. That is not what this text is saying. Uh, The meaning of this verse is that the Spirit-filled church can announce with authority that the sins of such and such people have been forgiven or have not been forgiven. At that very moment, this is simply the result of the preaching of the gospel. That's all it is. Don Carson notes this. The preaching of the gospel either brings men and women to repent of their sin as they hear of the ready and costly forgiveness of God, or it leaves them unresponsive to the offer of forgiveness, which is the gospel. And so they're left in their sins. And it's only... Only the local church who has the authority to validate a person's profession of faith in Jesus and his glorious gospel or invalidate it. It's only the spirit-filled church that can announce with authority that the sins of such and such people have been forgiven or have been retained at that very moment which makes this an excellent opportunity to ask any professing believers, any professing Christians who are here today, are you a baptized member of a Bible-believing local church? Is there a faithful Bible-believing church, a local body of believers who has heard your gospel confession, who knows you, and sees your life of repentance and holiness week in and week out, not not back in the DR or back in California, but actually where you live, and who can testify before the nations that your sins have indeed been forgiven. This is why being baptized as a believer, becoming a member of a local church, and your church-sanctioned, participation in the Lord's Supper is so important. Verse 23 doesn't work apart from that. This is how Jesus' mission continues and is effective in our ministry. So friend, get serious about baptism. 
get serious about church membership, come talk to me. Come talk to Pastor Alex. Send us an email. Send us a text. Talk to us after the service. We're delighted to talk to you about this. We want you to do this. You need to do this. Verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus. Thomas is Aramaic. Didymus means twin in Greek. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Why he wasn't there, we're not told. Perhaps Thomas was out buying food for everyone. And when he came back home, his arms was full of groceries. He was swarmed by the other disciples. Verse 25, we have seen the Lord. Which is what Mary Magdalene said back in verse 18. I have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. What's Thomas's problem? Why is this guy such a doubter? Doubting Thomas, right? Why is he so skeptical? And let me ask you, Christian. Do you think you would have responded with absolute faith in that moment? Were you in his shoes? Remember, just a few days before, Jesus had been crucified. Not one of the disciples had expected that. Even though Jesus told them on multiple occasions it was going to happen, that it must happen to fulfill the scripture, Simon Peter rebuked Jesus for even mentioning such a thing. He rebuked Jesus like you would rebuke a demonic spirit. Because Peter believed Jesus was the long-promised Messiah. And Messiahs win. If there was one truth a Jew could bank on when it came to the theology of Messiah, it was that Messiah's enemies are crushed. Messiah reigns victorious. That was just an absolute given. This means that Thomas, along with Peter and James and Bartholomew, they had no category for a crucified king who dies in shame, let alone a Messiah who rises from the grave. The latter scenario was just as nonsensical as the former. Thomas had been hoodwinked, right? Thomas had been duped. He'd been deceived, All his hopes for the restoration of Israel and the new era of righteousness that Jesus the Messiah would usher in through a renewed appeal to the law of Moses, Jesus' glorious political militaristic revolution, it had all been smashed at Golgotha. So Thomas was just going to have to see Jesus for himself. Peter and John could swear up and down. He could hear the testimonies of all the Mary Magdalene's in the world. He wasn't going to have an easy faith just believing somebody else's account. We have seen the risen Lord. Because there's a difference between faith and gullibility, isn't there? Once bitten, twice shy. So Thomas lays out the most extreme test he can think of. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and I put my finger where the nails have been, like actually putting it inside his hand and then put my hand into his side where the spear went, I will not believe. A week later, verse 26, which brings the action back to Sunday one more time, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them that time. Now just stop for a moment and consider this. What must have been going through Thomas's mind over the past week? We just jumped one week in the story. What's been happening? I know we're going outside the text here, but just use your sanctified imaginations. 
Thomas must have been living in a beehive of enthusiasm. Right? I mean, I'm sure the other ten disciples were walking on air. Big smiles on their faces all week long, telling him night and day like broken records. Thomas, we actually saw Jesus, brother. Peter saw him on his own. The two on the road to Emmaus saw him. The women saw him. Together, we all saw him. Ten of us at once. We've all seen him. You're the only one who hasn't seen the resurrected Jesus. And I'm sure over the course of that week, Thomas was thinking through some Old Testament passages a bit more in light of these claims that Jesus had risen from the dead. Again, the text doesn't say that, but do you remember the two disciples on the road road to Emmaus in Luke 24? I want us to turn there. This is important. Those, Those two men had received their own personal biblical theology lesson from the resurrected Jesus himself. He spoke to them along that road of things he had never discussed with his disciples during his pre-Calvary earthly ministry. Jesus waited until after the resurrection to have this conversation. Luke 24, verse 22, this is on page 1060, if you're using our church Bibles. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Verse 25, Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That's not some two-minute conversation. And that moment begins the epochal shift in how early Christian Jews start reading their Old Testaments. That's where it began. Before this day, Jews did not read the Scripture as if the crucified, risen Messiah was the interpretive key to the whole thing. Jews did not read the Bible as if the crucified, risen Messiah was its primary subject. But that all changed a week ago to the day along the Emmaus Road. Now... All the major doctrines of Judaism will be fleshed out into fuller understanding. In the years to come, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the early Jewish church will make radical shifts in their understanding of eschatology. The person of the Holy Spirit. The true people of God. The way God deals with sin the proper basis of hope, the right object of faith, the substance of new covenant promises, the dual nature of the Son, the role of Israel in redemptive history, and much, much more. It's a bit on the speculative side, but I think it's sanctified, harmonizing speculation as we put the Gospel of Luke and John together like this. But this could be why... Thomas confesses so much. My Lord and my God. When he sees the resurrected Jesus. No one else made a confession even close to that yet. 
No one's saying, my God, to the resurrected Jesus. It seems to me that the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection has been opened to Thomas' understanding through the scriptures and received in faith. He makes a leap, a good one here. Verse 26, through the, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Shalom. And then our Lord makes a beeline for Thomas. Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And how does Thomas respond? Certainly not like anybody responded to Lazarus when he raised from the grave. Here we see the the adoration of biblically informed faith. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Thomas's faith has seen the deeper meaning behind the resurrection. With the eyes of faith, he sees that the resurrection reveals who Jesus is on a whole other level. New City, the resurrection and Thomas's confession reveal to us the truth set out in the opening chapter of John's Gospel that the eternal word was God, and the eternal word became flesh. Thomas's confession is the crowning display of how human faith has come to recognize that truth. The eternal word became a human being and tabernacled among us. Also, this confession of the man formerly called Doubting Thomas, who is now better called Faithful Thomas, is the climactic exemplification of what it means to honor the Son, just as God the Father is honored. John 5.22. This is a key verse in this gospel. Jesus says, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. The Father is God, and we honor him as such. The Son is God. And we honor him as such. And it's honoring to God to kneel before Jesus Christ and worship him by confessing his lordship and his deity, my Lord, my God. But, John 5, 23b, whoever does not honor the Son, whoever does not make that same confession, does not honor the Father Who sent him. Friends, there's so much to rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus, so much, but there is a divine warning as well. Take heed and and don't overlook the fact that this is a personal confession of faith. This isn't just a mindless creed Thomas recites. Thomas says, My Lord. My God. Friend, have you bowed the knee to Jesus and made this your personal confession of adoration and worship? We're all expected to. 
all must honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And in light of the promise of Jesus' empty tomb, this is what coming to Jesus in faith looks like. Then Jesus told him, verse 29, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas believed on the basis of sight. He saw the resurrected Jesus and he believed. But Jesus foresees a time when he will not provide the kind of tangible evidence that Thomas was given. Jesus will soon ascend to the Father permanently, to that glory he had with the Father from eternity past, and all those who believe in him after that point will do so without the benefit of having seen Jesus with our physical eyes. However, Jesus says there is a special blessing promised to all who believe without seeing, the resurrected Christ. In fact, that's why John wrote his gospel. John's goal in writing his theological biography of Jesus is our personal salvation. And with this, I'll close. Verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, And that by believing, you may have life in his name. True life. Eternal life. Friends, that's the promise of Jesus' empty tomb. John wrote these verses 2,000 years ago, but that is still the purpose of the book today. And it's a message Jesus has commissioned you, Christian, in the power of the Spirit, to proclaim to a lost world. Amen.